Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm joined by my two colleagues, John Easton and Adam Belmar. John Easton is the E, Adam Belmar is the B. I'm John Fury, your host. I'm the F. I am, later in the podcast, we're going to be joined by Paul Mendelson of the National Association of Landscape Professionals. Be sure to tune into this. It's going to be a really excellent segment. Uh, Theory one, this is going to be a fun one, guys. Yeah. Stormy weather. Sarah Sanders, the White House press secretary, got herself in a lot of trouble with her boss for acknowledging that she has a legal, he had a legal issue with porn star Stormy Daniels. I feel for Ms. Sanders. That is the definition of being in the wrong place at the wrong time in a tough spot, no win situation. My theory, most people don't care about Donald Trump's sex life. That was thoroughly litigated during the campaign, yet the media is going to go hog wild on this story because it's got sex in it, right? Um, Adam Belmer, you worked for President Bush, who never had any sex scandals that we know of, um, and you also worked for the media. On a scale of zero, mean no caring at all, versus 10, Princess die. where does this story fall? Well, i got to say, I, I put this firmly at about a 2.6. John, um, Everybody knew what they were getting with President Trump. They know about his Playboy past. They know about his previous wives. They know about all the millions of dollars made and lost. And quite frankly, that's part of his persona. And people are not interested in things that that occurred like a consensual relationship of any kind between the president and someone before he was president. I don't think this is a big story, actually. So a couple things here, John Easton. First, there was the Sarah Sanders problem with the president, mm-hmm. which is kind of, I think, hilarious. Yep. And then there's all the, the whole story about uh, Mark Cohen and the payoff. Uh, do you think that, first of all, how, what do you think about Sarah Sanders and her position? And second, you know, is there more of a scandal here that shows a little bit more about, about the president? Well, I, th- I, I too feel for Sarah Sanders. Uh, because she has to contend with, and this will ne- this is never going to go away, whether it's Sean Spicer, Sarah Sanders, or the next press secretary. Donald Trump, in his world, has long had in his Playboy past, in his real estate empire, he's long had a army of lawyers. He's got a legal team outside this White House that is constantly fending off and, and playing offense. And that's something that is actually quite admirable. He plays serious legal offense. So here's Sarah Sanders trying to you know take the political incoming every single day, trying to explain policy, trying to explain White House moves. And she's stuck with trying to explain legal team issues. You right. know, Mark Cohn, who is his you know, lead, lead counsel on the outside counsel, and there's no way she can know how to explain every single thing every single day. There's no way. I mean, I, I, I saw what she said. It didn't move me, but apparently, you know, with Donald Trump, that means a lot. So, Adam, I want to probe this a little deeper. Are Republicans being hypocrites because they attacked Bill Clinton for doing some of the same type of stuff, and now they are largely don't care about Donald Trump? Are they being hypocrites on this stuff? You know what? I think to uh, some extent the answer is probably yes. The optics are bad. And it does appear, as is so often the case in politics, by the way, that uh, folks are holding uh, a leader of one party to a different standard. But again, I I think that uh, the supposition uh, with President Trump is that he's been involved in all kinds of 
different relationships. Some of them were monogamous. Some of them obviously <laughs> not. Uh, there are a lot of different kids. And some of the president's predilection for um, stuff stuff is well established <laughs> off the Access Hollywood tape. But the president was still elected. He is still <clears throat> held in high esteem. And I think that there is a real diminution of the public interest in salacious sexual stories and people think that and know that there's a lot more serious things going on and they want to push this aside. I don't blame Republicans for being way off base here morally. Well, and I want to point out something else that has become an absolute pattern with President Trump. And I'm not even going to say the White House. I'm going to say President Trump. When he, when the White House gets under siege by these these types of issues and this earlier this week it was a white house in chaos that's all the beltway media can talk about this place is melting down and the stormy daniels situation it was just and Mueller as well so really it was a trifecta of bad around the white house just swirling president trump walks into the briefing room and says Hey, I'm going to have some big news for you this afternoon. <laughs> I know. And next thing you know it, he's going to sit down with Kim Jong-un. We're, we're going to – I know. I just – the, the way he changes the subject is – Is this why the president – Unbelievable. Is this why he doesn't have a dog? Because he's constantly wagging the dog? Uh, okay. We'll go with that. Okay. Um, um, let me say that I do think that the president was elected because he knew he was a rogue. He knew he had all the stuff in this past. He knew that uh, – and I think the Republicans tried to attack him on it and during the primary, and they didn't care. I think voters simply care more about the jobs numbers, yeah. which are pretty good, mm-hmm. and having their own wages go up, which is pretty good, than they care about this stuff. Because I think everyone has their own skeletons in their closet. That being said, we also live in an era of Me Too, and uh, this president you know, has gone the other way. Um, um, and I think that the, the problem, the biggest problem in dem- demographically for this president is how to deal with uh, female voters. Um, and the, the gender gap is as big as it's ever been. Um, so I think the president has to figure this one out. Uh, and I do think changing the subject to peace and prosperity is not a bad idea. Right. And, and, and the other thing, too, is that voters abhor hypocrisy. Right. I think probably that's, that's the killer. Right. And, and if you look at his campaign – it's not like he was preaching, you know, moral values and family values. That's just not his shtick. Right. But he was preaching jobs, right. and he was preaching fair trade. And he's he's really he's he's fulfilling these promises. You have to say that, whether you like him or not, he's fulfilling those, and you know he's meeting that 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 threshold. So even in this era of stormy weather, it seems that the president is still sailing somewhat. I think that's a fair statement, and, and I think that for the benefit of the American public, and we're going to talk about this later in the show, jobs and the economy, which is a good news story in most parts, is what's driving things right now, and that's a good thing for all of us. So theory two, all we are saying is give peace a chance. Talking about what John Easton said earlier, President Trump shocked official Washington when he confirmed an announcement made by a South Korean delegation on the front portico uh, in the White House. Was that just surreal? He confirmed it. I think they confirmed, confirmed it by Twitter or was it an official statement that he was going to meet with Kim Jong-un. Um, my theory, if Trump pulls off a peace deal with the rocket man, he's going to win himself re-election. That's my theory. 
Uh, I'm not sure if it's true or not, and I'm not sure if he's going to be able to do this. Uh, John Easton, you um, used to work for one of the defense hawks, mm-hmm. Kelly Ayotte. You were the chief of staff. You know all the defense hawks. Um, you know that they care deeply about what's happening in North Korea. Um, what's your analysis of this situation? Are you as skeptical as everybody else is in official Washington? I am yes. I'm, I'm skeptical that just because of the character we're we're dealing with, Kim Jong Un is, is the guy is a major player, kind of on 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 the Putin level in terms of of how he plays chess or checkers or whatever game you wanna you wanna make the analogy to. But you know, a quick story. I, I was I was in the um, I was on a trip, an overseas trip with eight senators uh, back in the in uh, when I used to work for uh, Senator Gordon Smith, and. We were in Beijing, and we and these are eight finance committee senators, you know, that has jurisdiction over trade, and we got sort of snookered by uh, the the Chinese uh, about who we were going to meet with, and it was a big deal because we um, were supposed to meet have a major trade meeting uh, with the trade minister and. Uh, that was switched at the last minute, and we got some underling in, in the Politburo that just it was, really was meaningless. So the decision was made uh, by a number of the senators on on this on this trip to pull up stakes and take off. And mm-hmm. the diplomatic or the the embassy staff, the American embassy staff, was apoplectic. <laughs> they couldn't believe what we were doing, and they basically told us we can't do that. So this is sort of the attitude, and, and, and the diplomatic corps around the world, they are patriots. They are true patriots, and I think they do amazing work. But they think differently. They, they, there's a Kool-Aid that they drink. They're, they're kept of, the, of their audience, right? They are, and sometimes they're in the tank in their home, in the, in the country where they live, and they're, they can be arrogant at times oh, that, okay. that their way is, is the way, and who is this uh, you know, politician coming in telling us you know, what, what – well, President Trump turned this whole thing on its head, and I think sometimes it needs to be turned on its head. And I liked – I actually liked what he did on this because it's counterintuitive, and he just sort of took a sledgehammer to the, to the entire culture. Yeah, you know, hey, I agree with you. Um, I, I tweeted out today that doing the same shit, what we've done, has worked so well with North Korea over the last two decades. I mean, and you know, all these people are saying, oh, my God. Oh, my God. How could he do this? This is going to be terrible. Like, things have gotten better with North Korea. Give me a break. I mean, you know, Obama got snookered. Bush got snookered. Clinton got snookered. Um, what the heck? Let's give – maybe – you know what? Uh, Adam Belmar, what he did say to Kim Jong-un is my button is bigger than your button. Maybe that maybe that has some impact. What do you, what do you I, think? Are you a skeptic? I think both segments clearly affirm that there's nothing wrong with the president's button. There's no <laughs> problem with the button. Um, but, but quite honestly, you know, I, I, I think that both of you gentlemen are correct. I, I agree with the assessment, and I do think that there's something fresh and that there is something consistent about the way that President Trump is blowing up the playbook and trying fresh things. I do think that we need to appreciate that uh, every little step from here forward on a meeting between the United States and the North Koreans needs to be thoughtfully done. You can't play this whole thing from the hip, and no matter what they say, we know that it's going to be about what they do. And uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think there's plenty of room for new ground to be broken here. I think it's bold, um, but the exact details of how, when, where, 
and by what means we can uh, assess any of the, uh, uh, the, the progress, if we can really see progress, that's where the proof's in the pudding. But I give due credit to the president for changing the dialogue, for moving things forward in a new way. And well, he, a little bit of hope here. Yeah, he, he's done it backwards. Usually what they do is the staff, the respective staffs, go at this for months, if not years, trying to lay the groundwork for the two principals to talk. That is just not the way this president <laughs> operates. Well, so there's, there's Let's talk, and then they can figure it out. That was the question asked. Who's actually staffing the president on this? I, I got three, three, three quick points on this. Uh, first of all, um, you know, South Korea played an essential role in this, and they they're clearly were very, very concerned about uh, Trump being crazy, and they were the ones who went to Kim Jong-un and say, especially during the Olympics, hey, why don't we get something together here? Um, and that, that has to do with the domestic politics in South Korea. Uh, the second point uh, I would make is that North Korea is actually a big deal with the voters. If you ask people what was going on, and the, the thing that they're most panicked about is that we were going to go to war, we're going to have nuclear war with North Korea. When I talk to people out in the country, they're actually, that, that actually had a pretty big blip. That's why I think that this could be a big deal for, for Trump if he can figure this out. Because people are saying that we're going to get in a nuclear war because if Trump's president. Well, clearly... If we get a peace deal with North Korea, that takes that off the table. And the third point, and I, I say this kind of lightly, the central role of Dennis Rodman. Yeah, I had this conversation <laughs> with my kids last night. We have Xbox One, which means that we have NBA 2K18. So if you go back into the all-star leagues, you can put Rodman on the court. And my kids like Rodman. But when I told them that Rodman was a de facto U.S. ambassador, not only did they not believe me, but they thought it was impossible that he and Kim Jong-un could be bros. And <laughs> right. uh, I said, look it up, kids. You've got the Internet. Most, of, the most of America thinks that's still impossible that he, he's it's doing true. that. Uh-huh. And I think, it would be, you know, if we can make Dennis Rodman the first ambassador to North Korea – I mean, that solves a lot of problems. <laughs> See, it's kind of sad that we're trivializing the nuclear conflict element, but we really pass by the president of the porn star. Yeah, absolutely. Theory three, no workers, no work. I'm joined, we're joined actually by our uh, great friend Paul Mendelson from the National Association of Landscape Professionals to talk about something that is really happening in the economy. We want to bring Paul in to talk about it. Uh, we have... Uh, a growing economy. We have great job numbers today, unbelievable job numbers. We have wage growth going up through the roof, really. Uh, but we don't have is enough workers. And, uh, Paul, we want to bring you in to talk about what's happening in the landscape industry and, and talk about the, the issues that you're facing uh, in trying to attract workers to do the job uh, and to grow the economy even more. I think this is one of the real fundamental problems with, with the Trump uh, team. I love the Trump team. I'm pro-Trump. What I'm not pro is, uh, is uh, immigration policy and visa policies that don't actually reflect the growing economy. So could you tell us what's going on in your industry right now and how hard it is to get workers? Yeah, John, Adam, first of all, thank you very much for having me on today. This is a very important issue, and, and uh, I think it's one that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, you know, I, you mentioned the, the job numbers. I was driving in today. The numbers were announced. I'm sitting there thinking, huh, I'm going right now to Capitol Hill to talk about how we can't find any workers and how Congress's uh, inability to recognize the need for foreign labor assistance is literally driving seasonal businesses into a point where they're going to close or have to lay off workers. So um, one of the stats thrown out, out by, by lots of industries is that for every 
uh, H-2B visa issued, four American jobs are sustained. Um, what that basically means is you need foreign help sometimes t- on a temporary basis so that people can have permanent American jobs. Is that right? That's right, yes. And the way that a seasonal business works is, by definition, it's seasonal, which means that you have a time where you have to ramp up your employment, but you also have full-time employees that are with you year-round. When they aren't able to find seasonal workers, they lose contracts. They sometimes have to eliminate uh, those full-time jobs, sometimes even close their doors. So the lifeblood for the seasonal employers in a lot of ways is the H-2B program, and we have a real crisis right now when it comes to numbers available. You know, I I have uh, been interested in this issue for a number of years, and actually had a chance to do something uh, on this, uh, as you know, very much like what I did in a previous career. I was a producer at ABC News with Good Morning America for years, and I would travel to locations and really get to know the story, the people, and begin to appreciate how we're going to explain this or how we're going to share it. Well, the same thing is true with H2B. Um, The landscape industry is one that requires a great deal of labor, and these jobs are tough. Okay, the same thing goes along for hospitality, for food concessionaires, for carnivals, but in the landscape industry, you've got folks, and I've talked to them all over the country, and I've been down to Houston, Texas, uh, to hear what's going on there and here in Maryland. If we have unemployment at 4% and we're still building 300,000 jobs a month, the way that you've just mentioned, you need to respect the fact that there are a whole lot of jobs that just cannot be filled. And when you can't find Americans at almost any wage, competitive wage, to do a job, it's important to realize that there are temporary seasonal guest worker programs that make a huge difference. Some of these businesses are only ramping up and supporting these jobs the way you say for months, six months at a time, four months at a time. But without these folks, these businesses go under. I've seen it. And for some reason, Paul, Congress refuses to accept that the program that they have in place is not working properly, it's not transparent, and it does not respect uh, the American jobs that are, that are supported by H-2B. How do we get Congress to begin to understand that American jobs, American workers, and American business are being stifled by their intransigence? You know, that's a really good question. And before I get to that, I, I just wanted to return to the issue of wages that you yeah. brought up. Because there's, there's a lot of misinformation about the wages that are paid to seasonal workers. There's people who don't like the program that contend that it's a source for cheap labor or cheap labor. Nothing could be further from the truth. The average wage that was paid to an H-2B worker in 2016, according to the Department of Labor, was just over 14 bucks per hour. That is far above what I think most people would assume you're paying someone to provide landscape services. So getting back to your your question about how do we get Capitol Hill to recognize this, well, we've we've been working very hard to get not only our organization but other seasonal business uh, um, representatives to talk to their members of Congress about the crisis we're facing. Right now, um, we we are looking at a situation that if Congress does not act, 67% of the businesses that have verified through the Department of Labor that they have certified labor needs won't get H-2B workers. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? 
You know, it, 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 it's so striking to me that these facts can be out there and then ignored. John Fury, um, you have worked on this issue a lot too, but I want people to understand what we understand, which is that <clears throat> it is so much more expensive for seasonal employers to go looking for jobs outside the United States. It would be so much easier in every case if they could find qualified American workers who will show up and do that job because uh, dealing with the background checks, right. dealing with everything else right. adds an enormous cost and you would only do it if you wanted to support your full-time employees and grow your business and yet Congress seems to have a deaf ear to this. And, uh, you know, Adam uh, and, and Paul, you know, one of the guys who understands this intrinsically and actually whose properties use a lot of H-2B workers is our president. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, he And he's been very supportive of this program in the past. And well, he, he was before he got elected. And he, Well, I think he's still – I think he's personally supportive. I think the problem is that there's staff members and people in other places who are not supportive and want to kill the program or strangle the program uh, through – bureaucratic inefficiencies. I, I don't want to mention names, but can I use initials? Um, you sure can. SM might be one of them. SM, yeah, no, I, I, uh, look, yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I don't want to be coy here. Uh, the president was very rightly defensive of the practice of utilizing H-2B uh, non-immigrant temporary foreign workers at his property in the high season and they were taken care of last year while so many other businesses weren't. It's easy to be pro-H2B when you don't have to worry about it. But when small businesses, Mr. President, who are struggling every single month to keep online with their investments can't get any appreciative uh, ear to Congress or to the Department of Labor, that's the problem. And so he Paul, needs to wake up to that fact. And I, and I think he probably understands it, but I think you're right. I think there are some staff people, SM being a, a good example of that. Um, we're not talking about a lot of workers here. We're talking maybe what tops. There's 66,000 uh, visas right now that are allowed, something like that. Yeah, annually there are 66,000 that are allowed, and that is split up into two um, halves, 33,000 for each part of the year. So to give you an example of the, the number crunch we're looking at right now, the first day that uh, businesses that wanted to have workers starting on April 1st, which is the first day of the second half cap, that very first day that anyone could apply was January 1st. For those 33,000 positions, the Department of Labor received over 81,000 applications. And let's, let's, let's put this in context. How many people live in America? About 300 million, something like yeah. 350 million. Um, I mean, this is nothing. The idea that somehow this could have an impact on wage uh, there's a bigger problem going on. If you want to talk about depressed wages, the biggest problem with depressed wages comes with uh, illegal immigration. This is a fully legal program that is fully sanctioned by the Department of Homeland Security, the State Department. It has to go through. These people are thoroughly vetted. And, and the idea that they depress wages is idiotic. They have no impact on they, – they get paid more than – Well, than I, I think what Paul's saying is that they've actually driven wages right. in these they industries do. up significantly. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. Uh, but it's certainly not enough, and this is a truth we don't like to talk about a lot, uh, to entice American workers to take these jobs. They will not do it. We've got 300,000 new jobs added just this past month, and we've got 100,000 jobs that we cannot fill at any price point with any thorough commitment from American workers, we have an option here that works, Paul. But uh, I, I feel like 
there are more issues than just the broader one. The, the lottery is something that people are talking a lot about. Will you explain this to folks? What has happened with this lottery that no one knew about, and how are people getting hurt by this? Yeah, this is another real slap in the face to uh, those who depend on seasonal labor. Um, I already mentioned that they had a, you know, an unprecedented influx of applications on January 1st. Well, they continued to accept applications, and so they received totally between 140, 160,000 applications. The Department of Labor, much to their credit, was going to go through a process where they parsed those out so that there was some attention paid to when someone actually applied. So they were going to go by the time stamp of when the application was actually received by the Department of Labor. DHS, in their infinite wisdom, um, decided they didn't want to do that. And so last week, without any telling anyone about it ahead of time, they held a pure lottery. This week, businesses that thought they were going to have workers based on when their time stamp occurred are finding out they're not getting workers. Yeah. And conversely, those uh, some are lucky enough to find out that they did, in fact, win the lottery. But we're we're literally, you know, two weeks away from when these workers are supposed to be in the country starting. Uh, so it's just absolutely devastating to the businesses that depend on them. So if you're at a, at a great hotel like somewhere up in northern Michigan, you can't find employees. Maybe that means you can't, you know. Open on time? Exactly, yeah. I, I uh, have actually spoken with uh, the person who is the owner and principal of the Grand Hotel, which is one of America's most historic Absolutely. landmark hotels, and he is concerned that they're not going to be able to open up at all because they cannot find local labor on an island with such a small population. They depend on bringing it in through yeah, HTV. I, I tell you, Paul, I mean, thank you for highlighting this issue for us. I mean, I think it's really important uh, that people understand that these are the, the granular things that, that Congress deals with. And if they don't do it well, it has a real impact on people back home um, as far as making the economy really healthy. Um, and it's, I think this is an important issue. I'm glad that we, we raised it today. I, I just want to make one more point because when I talk to folks about this, they tend to conflate uh, temporary seasonal workers with this larger uh, issue of immigration reform. And I just want to make clear Folks who come to the United States on an H-2B visa, they're not immigrants. They come in for a very specific job, they work hard, they pay all their applicable taxes, and then when the job is done, they go home again. And that is not about bringing people and families into the United States. It's about servicing the need that other American workers have for help in the high season. Don't confuse these two. Our economic health and the ability of businesses to grow leveraged by the H2B program is not impacting national security or immigration. Don't make that mistake. So, Paul, right? one, one last thing. Where, where are we in the process uh, legislatively? What, 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 is gonna, what is Congress trying to decide right now? Well, fortunately for us, um, Congress has once again kicked the can down the road as far as the budget goes. So we have till March 23rd. Uh, what we're shooting for is getting some type of cap relief, um, whatever is comfortable with Congress. We know that there's some disconnect about what they want, um, into the omnibus bill that we expect them to vote upon uh, later on this month. Uh, and without that, like I said, the, the consequences could be devastating nationwide. So just this week, the uh, H-2B Workforce Coalition, a group of businesses from landscapers, to uh, hoteliers, 
to concessionaires, carnivals, all of these temporary seasonal laborers. They put out a new video. We all work together on it. I want to take a second to show you all what's out there and why uh, it's important that if you see this, you share it with your constituents on social media. America's small business owners have big dreams. Expand their business, get more customers, hire more employees. But you can't expand your business if you can't find employees. The H-2B visa program is all about temporary seasonal workers. Small businesses that rely on seasonal laborers like landscaping, hospitality, carnivals, and food concessionaires cannot make ends meet without these workers. Make no mistake, American businesses who are reliant on seasonal workers are suffering. It's a fact. Each H-2B visa sustains four American jobs, and H-2B guest workers are not immigrants. They work hard, and they go home when the job is done. Support American workers and their need for temporary help in the high season. Share this video, tag your members of Congress, and tell them to expand the H-2B program and to support the American dream. So, Paul, you just saw that video. It's been seen almost 15,000 times in the last three days. It's being shared all across the country. What can people do if they want to get involved and call or bring it to the attention of their members? How can we make this a priority before the 23rd of March? Well, we need everybody that is interested, everyone who understands what's at, at stake here, to get in touch with their members of Congress and urge them to personally contact their chamber leadership to include language for cap relief in the 2018 omnibus great hey paul thanks again for coming here today uh and thank you all for joining us on the fury theory today it's great to have a special guest like paul Mendelson here talking about real issues that really matter to america um and as we all know uh efb means excellent for business uh, yeah baby <laughs>